Good morning. It's good to see you. And um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. And before we get to that, I wanted to um, kind of make an announcement, uh, maybe an exhortation, maybe maybe fill you in a little bit on um, the church's policy regarding masks, etc. Because that, that has been a question that's on everyone's mind. It's been on my mind. And, uh, and I know it's on other people's minds. And so I just wanted to... Um, uh, give an announcement and it's one page typed out and, and, uh, so I, I may just actually read it to you. I don't know, but, but basically the, the church has said, um, in response to the governor's edict the church has said that masks are required. And we referred in a uh, sermon of July five. And if you didn't get to hear that, or you need to hear it again, I would encourage you to go back to listen to that one. I know it was lengthy and, uh, as you know, that's a, totally unusual thing for me to preach a lengthy sermon. I took note of the time when I got up here just so I could, I could, you know, honor you and, uh, end your time today, hopefully. But, uh, so we, we referred to Romans 13. We referred to first Peter chapter two and chapter three and other passages that we looked at for why we made the decision that we have made as an organization. We are submitting to our earthly authorities in an area that we don't believe is requiring us to disobey something God has commanded us to do, nor is, uh, is this edict requiring us to do something that God forbids. That's our position on that topic. Um, and so this is the position that we as an organization have taken. And um, different people may come to different conclusions. But for the elders, uh, in thinking through this and praying through this, this is the conclusion we came to, but, but some people disagree. What about them? What about those people? Well, you can see that we don't have bouncers. You can see that we don't have enforcers, right? Who are, uh, checking face masks and making sure that, yeah, you've got it on, but it must be above the nose also, et cetera. Does it fit properly? We don't have any of that. Okay. No bouncers, nothing like that. Um, some people are wearing masks. Some people aren't wearing masks. Uh, let's encourage, uh, let me encourage you to treat one another with, with Christian charity in this regard. Okay. Uh, these are kind of murky waters. And, uh, and so we're not going to look askance at, at, uh, one another for doing, making different choices than we have made. Even in the edict itself, there was, uh, there was leeway for those who have other reasons for not wearing a mask. If they have difficulty breathing, they have some other condition, they can't put it on themselves, etc. Okay, so, so there, are, there are exceptions given even there, and I'm certainly not about to come up to you and ask uh, what pre-existing condition you might have that would require you not to wear a mask. I'm going to trust you and the Lord in that. Okay, I'm not going to probe into that. None of us is going to do that. We don't have any desire to do that. And so you who wear masks should not look at those, uh, at another person who's not wearing a mask and think that he's just reckless. He just doesn't care about the health of other people. Or he's a scoff law. He couldn't care less what the law says. Okay? Any more than you who don't wear masks should look at a person wearing a mask and think that he's just fearful of a virus and really doesn't trust the Lord enough. Okay? We don't get to treat one another that way. We don't get to make assumptions about one another in those ways. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Is what Paul will say in Romans chapter 14. And on this topic, there are some who have temporarily stopped coming to church over this mask issue because we have said we want you to wear a mask. There are some people who are not here this morning who otherwise would be here because of uh, our stance on that position. They, they believe maybe that, uh, that a mask, wearing a mask, makes us look fearful as if we're fearful of the disease and we're not trusting God. So, so in short... They're fearful of looking fearful, okay? And they're not here with us this morning. And so they've, they've, uh, they've taken themselves out of the picture. Um, and I don't know how many that is. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a difficult uh, thing to assess. Several weeks ago, we laid out our biblical foundation for our current mask policy. And that was, again, July 5th. And it wasn't universally popular, it wasn't universally popular with all of the preachers in this congregation, okay? But what happened was we looked into the Bible. We looked into the Bible and we said, here's our situation and here's what the Bible says. And we are obligated to follow what the Bible says. 
Okay. And so um, we made the argument and we took the position that we took because we believe that it's biblical. We, we seek to understand the issue biblically. And I know I'm not the only one in the room or who's watching who has an opinion on this topic. But let me encourage you to do as the elders are doing on this situation. We've been praying and we've been agonizing over this for weeks. I can assure you of that. We've been pouring over our Bibles, trying to understand the issue, trying to understand what God would have us do. And so let me encourage you to do the same. Pray about the mask mandate and other government edicts, etc. Pray about those things. Pray about your own heart in the situation. I have confessed before you that I'm a rebel at heart. And I'm probably not the only one in the room who is a rebel at heart. I will look for ways to squirm out of things I don't want to do because of my sinful nature. And so will you. Pour over your Bible to try and understand the issue. Let me encourage you to spend more time in the Bible trying to understand the issue. What the Lord would have you do in this situation than you do listening to podcasts or reading blogs or reading the U.S. Constitution. I have done all of those things in the past weeks. But let me encourage you, let me exhort you that we need to find our leading. We need to find our direction. We need to understand what God's will is from this. This makes sense of those other things. Now, not everyone is excited about wearing a mask on a Sunday morning. I'm not particularly excited about it myself. I kind of look forward to getting to take it off and come up here. And talking to you without a mask on my face. But let's do our best to think biblically on the topic and not just follow our emotions. And again, your personal conclusion on this matter may differ from the church's position. The problem is not a simple one. Oh, here's a verse that solves everything. Here's a passage that solves everything. It's not a simple question. We understand that. And so we ask that that everyone pray. Everyone seek a biblical answer, that everyone fear God, and that everyone treat one another with charity and not pass judgment on one another. I've had numerous conversations with numerous people whose perspective is different on this. And I'm not going to say flat out uh, just one statement, no, that's all wrong. We can't say that. I don't believe we can say that. But no one should be neglecting to meet together with the body because of this issue. There should be no division within the body because of this issue. Because some are wearing masks and some aren't. We need to be together as a church as much as health will permit. Now, I know there are some people who are, uh, because of health situations, because of their own health and the risk that it would be to them, they are not here this morning, they're watching online or they'll watch later. I understand that. And, and uh, I support that. I encourage that. But we're, just, we're all just doing the best we can in this. So let's give one another a little bit of slack. A couple of weeks ago, I was wearing a different mask that was difficult to breathe in, and I, I tried to sing in it that morning, and I determined I wasn't going to wear a mask when I sing because I, I was so busy worried about catching my breath, I didn't worship the Lord at all. I, I, could, I could sing two out of every three lines, and so next week I didn't wear one. Well, then the week after that, I put a mask on that I could breathe in while I was singing. So today I sang in a mask. Last week I sang in a mask. But these are, we're just doing the best we can. Okay, we're just doing the best we can. And so we're seeking to honor the Lord. We're seeking to um, be obedient as far as we can. And we need to treat one another with uh, with kindness and with humility and with some charity. Okay, and we need to be seeking God's will in the Bible on the topic. If nothing else comes from this than you knowing your Bible better because you were just looking for a loophole (laughs) or you were just looking hard for how to understand this situation, even if you're not just looking for a loophole. If you know your Bible better because of this time, praise the Lord for that. But if, if you only know the Constitution better or the blogosphere better or where to find a good podcast on political issues, then it's been a waste. Right? So I encourage you, 
stick your nose in your Bible and work through it that way. That's what we are seeking to do. And that's what we are seeking to do as elders with one another. All right. So that's my exhortation for the morning. Uh, It's been on my mind. This weighs on me heavily. It really does weigh on me heavily because I, I can't see clearly all the way through it. And I don't like that. But here we are. We're meeting again. We're worshiping the Lord again. We have the Bible open in our laps again. And so we need to do that, seeking Him, seeking His Word, and in unity with one another. Okay? All right. So you've got your Bibles open to Romans chapter 9, and the sermon will have very little to do with anything that I just said. (laughs) Okay? Romans chapter 9, and I kind of whetted your appetite by doing the whole chapter last week. I probably raised some expectations, and let me lower them right back down to reality. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we submit to you this morning. And we call to mind even now that you are God. There is none like you. That you are our creator and our sustainer. That you are almighty. That you are eternal, unchanging, holy. That you love us. That you are merciful and patient. And we worship you this morning. And we worship you whether we wear a mask or don't wear a mask. We worship you. And we praise you for what you've done for us in Christ. We praise you that not only are you our creator and sustainer, but you are our redeemer. You sent Christ to rescue a people, to rescue sinners like us. And we worship you and praise you for that. And Father, as we turn to your word this morning, I confess that the issues of uh, this world and government edicts and the state of everything going on intrudes into my mind and would distract me from this message, from this passage, from these truths this morning. So, Father, I ask that you would work in our nation. I ask that you would give our leaders wisdom. I ask that you would convict them to serve their people, the good of their people. I ask that you would bless them as they do that. I ask that you would be at work in our nation. And Father, at the same time, I pray that you would be at work in the churches in our nation. That we would proclaim the truth. That we would be obedient to you. That we would have submitted hearts. That we would know what church discipline is. That as a church, we hold one another accountable to live holy before you imperfectly, but before you. And that you would do a work in our nation, that you would draw people back to yourself, that churches would begin to proclaim the gospel that have not done so in a long time, that that churches that have gotten off into other messages on other topics would, would come back around to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I pray that you would do a work beginning in the household of God in our nation. And Father, as we turn to Romans chapter 9, in these verses today, I ask that you would bless our time. 
work in us, even as we have your word open before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, the, the design of the message was to give you the whole lay of the land for all of Romans chapter 9, that you would see kind of the big picture. And then uh, now I intend to go back through and work uh, through each of the different paragraphs to kind of look at the details of what's going on, what makes the big picture work. But uh, each of those, the big picture needs to be led, read in light of the details, and the details need to be read in light of the big picture. It's part of understanding literature. It's part of understanding what God has given us in his word right here. And so uh, Paul starts off with these first few words, and, and uh, we see here a sincere compassion. Sincere compassion. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He has a heavy heart, a heavy heart. And this is interesting. If you remember the paragraph before what came just a few words before the the Mount Everest of praise for salvation in Christ, for how secure we are in Him, for how complete is this salvation, the fact that He will carry it out. He concludes chapter 8 at Mount Everest. There is such joy. And then he starts chapter 9 in the pit. Now what happened? Did he have a bad night's sleep between the time he wrote chapter 8 and chapter 9? Did he get up on the wrong side of the bed? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. He's, he's thinking about this salvation. He's thinking about the joys of what it means to be in Christ, this, the security that we have in Him, the, how God has been at work accomplishing salvation, and, and therefore we are perfectly protected in Christ. And that leads him to think of those who are not in Christ. And particularly those of his own kindred. He's a Jew. And so he thinks of other Jews who don't know Christ, who are still in Judaism, who have rejected Christ. And so we have existing simultaneously exceeding joy and terrible sorrow. And I want to, I want to pause right here and say this is a Christian thing. This is a Christian thing. That as Christians, we don't go through life purely joyful. And that's all we experience. A smile on our face every day and everything is just fabulous because I'm a Christian. Everything is just fabulous. That is not how we go through life. Nor do we go through life in the dumps all the time. Because we understand the depth of sin. We understand the depth of our own sin. We understand the depth and the consequences of sin of other people around us and, and the, the consequences of unbelief and what's going to happen to these people. We understand that, but we don't go through life in the dumps. As Christians, we exist simultaneously in both places. We experience both at the same time. A great joy and a great sorrow existing side by side. Paul didn't go to bed uh, super excited about the end of chapter 8 and then, uh, and then get up on a Monday morning and write chapter 9 and, and life is just miserable. These are simultaneous for the Christian. And one informs the other. Because as we experience this great joy that we have in Christ, we see those who are not in Christ and we agonize for them and we, we experience an even deeper sorrow because they don't have what we have. And when we look at someone who is lost, we, we, we experience that sorrow with them. We weep with those who weep. At the same time, we rejoice that we have Christ. So these exist simultaneously. They're not opposites. They are the Christian life. And that's what that's what Paul gets to here. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He starts off this chapter, and I said before, 
in uh, the message last week that Romans 9 has a reputation for being kind of hard-nosed. There is some deep and hard theology here that, that you better buckle up to read. And we can think that it's academic and that it's, that it's distant and that it's somebody in a white tower, an ivory tower somewhere wrote it. That it doesn't really strike the emotion. Paul starts off with tears in his eyes. His heart is heavy. He's invested personally and emotionally in what he's talking about. And so the words that he's going to say in the paragraphs to follow need to be read in that light. It is not a harangue. He's not yelling. He's not angry. He's weeping and seeking to lay before us God's mind on this matter. So he has a heavy heart. But then secondly, he has an honest heart. I mean, doesn't he go to great lengths here? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Right? He, he goes way out of his way to make it known. This is what I really feel. I'm not making this up. This isn't that I'm saying something nice because now I'm going to say something mean. And then later on, I'll throw something nice in again. This is what I feel. This is, this is what is true of my heart. He, he lays out his own heart right there before them and says, look at it. It's, it's, it's broken. It's right there. Look at it. God testifies. My conscience testifies. My heart is broken on this topic. And I think he does so for a couple of reasons. First of all, because the theology that he's about to write can sound harsh. He's going to say later in the chapter that many Israelites have been passed over, passed by for salvation because that's God's plan. That sounds harsh. And so he knows he needs to lay out what he feels about it, what his heart really is on the topic before he gets into that. And so he needs to, he needs to say, he needs to introduce this topic with the utmost delicacy. But secondly, he needs to lay out his heart so that they can see what he really feels on this because Paul has a reputation. If you remember, uh, when we went through the book of Acts, when Paul shows up in Jerusalem after having been gone for a long time, he shows up and he meets with the brothers. And uh, we read this. If you go back to Acts chapter 21, and you can see Paul's reputation what people thought of him, what other Jews thought of him. So in Acts chapter 21, I'm going to read verses 19 through 21. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he's been on his missionary journeys. He's, he's been to far places. He's seen amazing things and Gentiles coming to Christ. And so he relates those things. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. You see, Paul's ministry among the Gentiles had been misunderstood. Paul would go to a place, and of course we know, because we've read the book of Acts, we know that's his experience. The gospel goes to the Jew first, and so he goes to the synagogue, preaches there, and pretty soon he gets run out of there. And then he'll go and he'll work amongst the Gentiles. And he might stay a couple of years working primarily with the Gentiles, not because he prefers the Gentiles and who cares about the Jews. He ministered to the Jews first, and ended up amongst the Gentiles. And so you have these great Gentile, mostly Gentile churches all over the place. And so he comes back to Jerusalem and they say, we've heard that uh, you're not really into Judaism, that you, uh, um, you, you downplay Moses and obedience to the law and circumcision. You're, you're, you're teaching our people not to be Jews anymore. That was the reputation that he had because he had been misunderstood. And so he needs to lay out here at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, here's my heart for my people. Far from deserving this reputation that I have amongst the Jews, this is my heart. It is broken 
for my people. So he has a heavy heart and an honest heart. And then thirdly, a Christian heart. He says he is speaking the truth in Christ. This isn't just swearing by the Lord that what he is saying is true. There's something particularly Christian about Paul's sentiment. And this goes back to what I was saying about at the same time, the Christian is overjoyed by what we have in Christ and feels deep sorrow for the plight of those who are not in Christ. This is the Christian heart. And that is the heart of Paul in this context. And so his attitude is not just, he, he's not just saying here uh, he, that he swears by the Lord that this is true. No, this is his heart. Which raises a question in passing. Is, is Paul more compassionate than God is? Is Paul more compassionate? If this is Paul's heart, is Paul more compassionate than God is? Well, of course, the answer is no. That God is all compassionate and that uh, is, is seen. Um, Paul's understanding of God's heart and of this theology in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is what we see in chapter 11, verses 33 through the end of that chapter, he says, after having concluded this whole discussion about God's electing sovereignty, about his work with the people of Israel and the nations and how that all works together, when he ties all of that up together at the end of 11, this is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. You see, Paul understands that God's mind on this topic is far higher than Paul's mind or yours or mine. And the plan that you and I would concoct to display the greatest mercy to put on display God's glory to the utmost, the plan that you and I would concoct would be far inferior because his mind is that much higher. His wisdom is that much greater. His understanding is that much more all-encompassing than ours. And Paul, even Paul, the greatest apostle, is still fallen and he's finite in his understanding. But what's more than that, the offense that the Jews, and we can include the nations also, but specifically here he's talking about the Jews. It's not that their uh, offense is, is uh, qualitatively different necessarily. But the offense the Jews have committed against Paul himself. Paul's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been thrown in jail. He's been run out of town. He's been all kinds of things because he's a Jew at the hand of other Jews, because he's a Jew who's a Christian. And those offenses pale in comparison to the offenses of a sinner against God. You see, Paul himself has fallen. He, he kind of, in a way, he deserves some punishment. He, he, he deserves some kind of response from people around him. Not that he deserves to be beaten or arrested or any of those things, but he's a fallen creature just like them. And so the offense that the sinner offends against God himself is infinitely higher because God is infinitely greater. God is infinitely holier. And so the offense of anyone against him is infinitely worse. And so Paul understands this. Even he's explaining it to us, though he can't grasp, he can't, he can't fully appreciate the depth of that because Paul's mind itself is fallen and finite as is yours and mine. And so that's how you get to the end of chapter 11 and Paul could say, this is God's working and it is magnificent and it is beyond me. So point of application here before we go any farther. Like Paul, we should feel our theology. We should feel our theology. Some people can 
can turn off what they feel and just think. Other people can turn off what they think and just feel. And then there are a lot of people kind of in between. But theology is not just a, an academic exercise for us to think about some topic. We are talking about the God of all things. We are talking about our relationship with him. And so when we think about our theology, it should go right down to our feelings. It doesn't flow up from our feelings. That's important for us to recognize here also that Paul feels this deeply. Can anyone feel more deeply than Paul does here? I don't know. But that's pretty deep if he's willing even to give up his own salvation, which we're going to get to momentarily. He feels very deeply about it. But he doesn't emote his theology. He doesn't emote his way to truth. He doesn't say, well, this feels right, therefore it's right. He doesn't do that. He doesn't ignore what he feels, but he reasons biblically to what is true. Though initially it breaks his heart in the beginning of 9, by the end of 11, ultimately he can praise God for it. And so for us, as we are thinking about God, when we're thinking about any decision, frankly, masks or anything else, we don't emote our way to a decision. We, we feel what we feel, and that's, that can be legitimate. We need, to, we need to be aware of that and even open with that. And then we need to reason biblically. We need to argue biblically to our theology. And that's what Paul has done here. So first of all, we can see his own uh, sincere compassion that he has. Uh, but then there's a shocking sentiment that he mentions here in verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The shocking sentiment is that he, he's willing to be a substitute. He would be willing to be a substitute. He says... He, he, he could be willing to be accursed for them, to be accursed from the Lord for them. Now, there are a couple of things going on here. He, the way it's worded makes it clear that that's not a real possibility. He's not saying, okay, I signed up the other day uh, to be accursed for you, and then now you will be saved. It's not reality. But he's saying, this is my heart. That if it were even allowable, if it were even possible in God's sight, I love my people this much that I would even be willing to be accursed from the Lord for their sakes. He would offer himself as a substitute. He would trade his own happiness for theirs. He would trade his own salvation for theirs. Of course, it's not a real possibility. Paul's theology everywhere else indicates to us that is not a real possibility. It is a, uh, not even a hypothetical. It's a, this is how much I love you, that I would do this if it were even possible. He, he words it, if you look over to chapter 10 and verse 1, in a much less shocking way. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's his goal. That's what he wants. That's the, the end. That's what he has in mind. But in our passage, in 9.3, he says a very shocking statement. I would even be willing to be accursed. And in, in that statement, he's a little bit like Moses, first of all. He's been accused of hating the Jews or being distant from the Jews or trying to change the Jews from being Jews or, or whatever his reputation is. But actually, he's playing the role of Moses. Back in Exodus chapter 32, if you remember years ago we did the book of Exodus, this is what we read in Exodus 32 verses 30 through 32. The next day, Moses said to the people, so this is right after the golden calf incident, not a high point in their history, right? So Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law. And as he's doing that, he's, the, the covenant is being made. The law is being received. And what's happening down here below the mountain? A riotous party. An idolatrous, riotous party 
is going on down here, the golden calf incident. And so the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, then he breaks off and he says, But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Forgive them. And if you're not going to forgive them, take me instead. Blot me out. So here, Paul has this reputation for being anti-Jewish in some way. But in fact, he stands in the place of Moses. The lawgiver. The hero of Israel. And Paul is saying the same thing in similar circumstances. So he's a little bit like Moses, but then more like Jesus. Of course, the far more important mediator, the far more important sacrifice, substitute for sin is Jesus himself. Paul says he would be willing to be accursed for the salvation of his people. Of course, he can't be accursed for the salvation of his people because Romans 8 exists. So he can't be accursed for the salvation of his people, but he's willing to be accursed for them. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Christ redeemed us from Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the, Paul's sentiment is very shocking to us. And I don't know if you can relate to that or not. I don't know if I can relate to that or not. That's, that's pretty deep. That's pretty great emotional commitment to be able to make that kind of statement. But it's what Jesus did. He didn't just make the statement that Almighty God, the creator of man, is holy, is all-powerful, deserves all worship, deserves all praise, deserves all obedience from all of his creatures. And he creates man. And man runs immediately into sin, rebellion against God. And so here's the creator looking at his creation that has just rebelled against him, he would have every right to take that lump of clay and do something new with it. But he doesn't. He's merciful and he's patient. And he waits years and he waits centuries and he waits thousands of years. And then he sends his son. He sends his very own son who becomes a man like one of these creatures, becomes one of them, but obedient, honoring to God, giving God the glory and the honor and the the obedience that he deserves. And he didn't just do that to show us an example of, here's how it's done, follow me. He did that because we can't follow that example. Because we're rebels, because we're broken, because we're fallen, because we are at heart at enmity with God. We're born that way. And he sends Jesus. And Jesus obeys. Jesus is obedient to God his whole life. And then, having been obedient to God and, and not deserving death himself, yet he goes to the cross because you and I deserve death. He went to the cross to pay the penalty to redeem sinners to pay that penalty for their disobedience. And so he dies in their place. He is the substitute. He didn't wish it. He didn't pray for it. He didn't just say it one time to his friends or even write it in a letter. He did it. He completed it. He came and lived in our stead, obeyed where we've disobeyed, and died in our stead, dying for us, that we wouldn't have to die Guilty of our sin. And so Paul's sentiment here in 9.3 points to Moses, but much greater than that, it points to Jesus himself. Points to Christ and what he has done.
He mentions, thirdly, their supreme advantages. Verse 4 and 5, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. First of all, they are a blessed people. And he doesn't call them Jews here, does he? He calls them Israelites. That's the term that an Israelite would call another Israelite. That's an insider term. It's kind of how we refer to Fallon as Fallon America, but really only Fallonites know that. Someone else first moves to town, they don't refer to this as Fallon America, right? That's how insiders talk. Well, the way insiders talk, one Israelite to another Israelite is Israelites, not Jews. He's, he's, he's summing up in that one term. He's bringing to their mind all the blessings, all the blessings that they know of, all the blessings given to them in the Old Testament. They are a blessed people. Paul is identifying himself with them. He, he could have said Jews and he would have been right. And he could still make his argument and it wouldn't change much of what's going on. But by, by referring to Israelites, he identifies with them. It's like if you see another Fallonite somewhere else in the world and you talk about Fallon America, you're identifying, you're connecting, you're identifying with that person. And that's what he does here. They are Israelites. And it sort of sums up all of the other blessed gifts that are to follow. That whole list that he goes through there. He says, they are Israelites. That's the summing term. And he says, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, etc. And we don't have time to go through each of those in detail. But they are essentially the sum total of the blessings to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel, to the Israelites, the adoption. Did you know that way back in Exodus, we referred to it, Exodus 4.23, when, when God sent Moses to be a messenger to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Do you know what message he sent? He said, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And it gets, it gets even better or worse, depending. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. How does God think of the people of Israel? That's my firstborn son. That's how he addresses it. He had adopted Israel as his own. And the glory, Exodus 24, and numerous places actually in the Old Testament, the glory uh, of God was, was there and was revealed when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law. The glory of the Lord was on Sinai. It appeared like a devouring fire, and, and everybody could see it. God was visiting them. And then he came and dwelt in their midst because in the book of Exodus, what do they build? They build the tabernacle and they, they take the ark and they put it there and you get the Holy of Holies. And the glory of the Lord is associated with each of those things. The glory would come down on the tabernacle. And when they first built it and consecrated it in the last chapter of Exodus, Moses couldn't even go in. The glory was too strong. He couldn't even enter because God's glory was with them, traveling with them. And of course, the covenants... Uh, made made uh, with Abraham and then and then subsequently after that and made at Sinai with the Lord, etc. There are many of these. Uh, the giving of the law, of course, is a, a precious thing. How many people has God spoken to and says, this is, this is a representation of me and this is how you obey me. Unique to the people of Israel. Unique to the people of Israel until the time of the New Testament. And of course, theirs was the worship of which is associated with the tabernacle and the temple. It was unique to them. God had shown them, this is how you approach a holy God. People don't just get to approach holy God however they want, willy-nilly, what they think is best. God says, this is how you approach. And he tells that to whom? The people of Israel. They have the worship with the sacrifices and the priests and all that and all the promises that have been made. And there are many, many promises, but they can be summed up in the Messiah that he would be a prophet greater than Moses, that he would be a king greater than David, and he would be a priest greater than the whole Levitical priesthood. These were the promises. 
And that he himself, that Messiah, would be a sacrifice greater than any sacrifice that could ever be made under the old covenant and adequate to bear the sin, the iniquity, the guilt of us all. That's the blessed seed that he concludes with in verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, which we won't talk about. That's summed up in those other things. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the tragic point in the paragraph. The, the, the great weight of those blessings that were given to them, the one they had been told literally for thousands of years to expect, he shows up on the scene and they don't want him. They don't want the kind of Messiah God sends for them. They expected they wanted something different. And Jesus didn't fit the criteria, so off with him, let's have a better one. He wasn't what they wanted. And he himself, of course, Christ, is God over all. He's blessed forever. What they didn't realize, what they didn't understand, though they should have, and a choice few did, was that the Messiah was not just a man who would do great things for his people. He was God himself visiting them. God himself living among them as one of them taking on human form. Because what the people needed the most was not a, not a hero, not a valiant champion, not political might, not military might. What they needed most was not an example, a holy man. That's not what they needed most. What they needed most is the same thing that we need the most. We need redemption. Because we come from those creatures that God made who fell into sin. And then you and I have inherited that sin. Every human has inherited that sin. Except for Christ himself. And so we stand before God guilty. We have a natural inborn enmity against him, in rebellion against him. And so what we need is not some outward redemption, not some outward work. I need work right here. I need redemption right here. I need to be redeemed in my innermost being. All of me needs to be redeemed, not just some outward peace or part of my life. The problem is we're born guilty before God. The problem is we continue in that apart from the saving work of Christ. And this is why Jesus came, why he was obedient to God, fulfilling the whole law, righteous before God. Because we're not. And he wanted to redeem a people for himself. And so he obeyed where we've disobeyed. And then he paid that penalty, that penalty that would take us eternity to pay and we would never finish paying. Eternity in hell of separation from God. Conscious and eternal and torment. Separated from God because of our enmity. But there is redemption in Christ. He himself took on that penalty upon himself on the cross. Being the righteous one, being infinite and eternal because he's God himself in the flesh and thus able to bear the full wrath of God for all his people. Of course, he bore that to the death and then God raised him from the dead on the third day, which demonstrates to us many things. And one of the things it demonstrates to us is that God agreed that payment was sufficient. It accomplished its purpose. And so for us, if we will realize our own need and we will look to Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, we will find ourselves at the end of chapter 8 and not in this terrible position at the beginning of chapter 9. So that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for each one of you this morning and each one listening is that you will look to Christ in that way. And you'll find forgiveness in Him. You will find new life in Him. You will find reconciliation with God in Him. And so here, 
Paul agonizes. He's laid his heart out. And if he were here this morning, though we're not Jews, he would lay that heart out and he would say, this is my heart for the lost. And he would beg you. He would exhort you. He would encourage you. He would plead with you, look to Christ and find this salvation in him. And that's our exhortation this morning. Let's pray. Father, this chapter, this paragraph is instructive to me about how emotionally invested Paul was in his people. And it points so far beyond Paul because Paul, a limited, finite, and fallen being, though redeemed and maybe the best Christian ever, can't even compare to the heart of God. Because Jesus didn't just say, I could be willing to be accursed if it were even possible or even allowable. He came and bore the curse to redeem sinners. Father, I pray that you would redeem sinners even this morning. I pray that many would look to you. And I pray that those of us who are in Christ would rejoice in this great truth that we are in Christ and we find ourselves at the end of Romans chapter 8 secure in Him, having everything in Christ safe and that like Paul we would continue and look around us and see the lost and see their condition and I pray that you would grow in us a heart of great compassion for the lost around us and Paul didn't just weep he didn't just cry himself to sleep He went out with the gospel message to see people come to know you. May we do the same. May Parkside do the same. May we, who are hearing these words this morning, be motivated to do that exact same thing, that we would have simultaneously that wonderful, glorious joy of being in Christ and feel that burden and that weight and that sorrow to take the gospel to the lost world around us. Pray that you would be at work in our hearts and through the gospel proclaimed. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.